So um, I was recently uh, thinking about the book um, Uncomfortable by uh, Brett McCracken. I know I've mentioned this book before uh, to some of you guys. And some of our leaders, we went through this book uh, a while ago, I think about a year ago. Um, but there's this part in the beginning of the book where he talks about his uh, dream church. And um, it's so interesting because he's so descriptive about what his dream church would be. And so he talks about like his dream theology. He talks about his dream architecture. And like, you know, for example, when he talks about his architecture, he says it will be, it would be contemporary, minimalist, environmentally sustainable, lead certified, energy efficient, urban design with nods to classic church aesthetics. Some of that stuff, I don't even know what those words mean. You know, uh, and then he talks about like clubs he would have at his church. So like dream clubs, including taste and see for foodies crossfit cross that's come on that's a little too on the nose but crossfit for uh church exercise enthusiasts holy spirits spirits uh plural for those who like to sample rare scotch bourbon rum and other spirits get it uh and even like he talks about dream pastries right chocolate blueberry croissants maple bacon biscuits lemon pistachio polenta cake what is that? I don't even know what that is. Sounds delicious. But and then like gourmet coffees, you know, and like and, and you know, there would be something for people who like hiking. There would be something for people who like, you know, basketball, like every other, every kind of like art. He talks about turning it into an art gallery, you know, on the on the weekdays and and just the acoustics and how the acoustics would be amazing and the lighting and all this kind of stuff. Now. I'm about to I'm about to hate on <laughs> about to hate on this in a second, but <clears throat> I you know McCracken himself concludes he notes that this kind of exercise is kind of dumb. Basically, you know I'm I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He he says in fact he says talking about one's personal dream church is an exercise in not only futility but flat out gospel denial. You know, the church does not exist to meet our comfort zone preferences, but rather to destabilize them, to jostle us awake to the dead-eye stupor of a culture of comfort worship that impedes our growth. So he himself says that this kind of doesn't make sense, right? But I thought about it, and one of the things I was thinking was, even as a dream church, does that really make sense? Like... And is that the kind of thing that we would want, that we dream about when we think about church? You know, good architecture, acoustics, lighting, powerful AC, ample parking, you know, just a, a children's center, you know, a, a massive, you know, playground and, and gourmet pastries and a group for every interest. That's the dream. Is that the dream? Like, is that the kind of thing we should dream about when we think about church? Basically being rich and doing, be able, be able, being able to do whatever we want, you know, having every kind of a club available, having every kind of interest and um, appetite met just in the context of church? I guess the heart of my question is something we have to ask ourselves. Is our dream for church life to be essentially maximally powerful and enjoyable, but with minimal personal disruption 
discomfort and sacrifice. Is that what we want church to be? Like, I want it to be maximally enjoyable and, like, powerful. I want to be convicted. I want the music to just kind of, like, become visible almost and affect me in this profound way. I want there to be art all over the place. I want the acoustics to be perfect, like, perfectly tuned. I never want there to be a technical problem. I want AC to be exactly at 72 all the time. You know, just, like, I want to feel good in there, and I want to know everybody and be friendly with everybody, and and we can hike together, and we can bike together and we can run together you know we can do all the stuff it's so fun it's so exciting but essentially i don't want my life to get disrupted in any significant way i want to still be able to do all the things i want to do i don't want my lifestyle to become any you know i don't want my station in life i want my station in life to go up and i don't want my you know my uh uh, the, the, the level of comfort that I'm accustomed to really changing in any significant way. Is that the dream? And if it is, is that dream biblical? Is that the kind of church we should aspire toward? Is that the kind of church that would be aspirational for a people who is authentically following Jesus Christ. Now that's a question that only you can answer for yourself, but it will be one that we are examining today. Essentially, we'll be looking at how do we know whether our discipleship is authentic if we really are following Jesus? And how can we pursue authentic discipleship, which we'll talk about a little bit at the end. Now, uh, if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 13 to 29. We'll take it piece by piece. We're actually still in our... Um, Authentic Faith in an Artificial World series. I know I said that um, we were concluding last week. I was mistaken. There's, <laughs> there's one more here. Um, Matthew 7, verses uh, 13 through 29. And we'll take it piece by piece here. Here's this first section. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, okay, here's the first thing. How do we, how do we know, how do we examine whether or not our discipleship is authentic? Here's the first point. Examine the road you're on. Examine the road you're on. Now, very quickly, just to look at this, what are the characteristics of the wide road that leads to destruction? So there's a couple things. Spatially, it's called wide, right? So there's a lot of, move, uh, a lot of room to move around, kind of like a lot of freedom. This is one way you could look at it, quote-unquote freedom. It is deceptively comfortable, it's easy, but it's deceptive because it leads to destruction. 
So it's like a road that looks good. You think, oh, if, you're, if you find a fork in the road and you see two roads and one looks really messed up and one looks really nice and like well-paved and it's wide and you look at that road and you're like, oh, that must be the better road. That must lead to the better destination. So you go to that road. It's easier, but it leads to destruction. And finally, the last characteristic is there are many people on this road. So there are far m more people on the wide road than there are on the narrow road. Okay, so what are the characteristics of the road that leads to life? Again, it's narrow, meaning it is more restrictive in a certain sense. The, the wide road, people can move around a lot. The narrow road, it's, it's a narrow road. It is restrictive. The road is deceptively difficult. So it is deceptively uh, like a bat. Like, again, if you're at the fork in the road and you look at the road, it might look like it's the rougher, worse road. It must lead to a worse place. But actually, it leads to life. And then finally, contrasting from the wide road, those who find it are few. Okay, now one question we'll look at before we actually examine ourselves, right? Um, what comes first, the gate or the road? Okay, now it seems that in the passage, Jesus intended the order as it is actually found in the text. The gate comes first and then the road. So this is just to clear up any, any misconceptions that this might have some kind of work salvation idea. And there, there's nothing like that in here. Jesus is clearly saying that there is a decision to kind of go through this gate first and then there's the road. But we have to think about which road we're on. So even if you are a Christian, he's still saying Examine the road you're on. Now, here's a simple question in light of that. Which road would you say that you're on? Are you on the easy road or the hard road? So let's look at these couple ways, right, that we can examine based on the text. Are you on the easy road or the hard road? Now, before we even answer that, two things you got to remember. One, Regardless of what road you're on, there's going to be some difficulty in your life because of sin, because we live in a broken world. So no matter how good your road is because of sin, we're going to find things to complain about. Even if you, you know, it's like the world isn't perfect for anybody, even the uber rich, right? Like the 0.1%, there's always going to be things to be unhappy about, you know. I don't know, mansion problems, you know, it's just expensive to fix a Bugatti. Like, like there's always going to be things, right? Your kids having problems at boarding school, stock market volatility, summer home construction came to a halt. You know, there's like, it doesn't matter. Even if you have everything in life and you have a, you know, great family and you were uh, born uber privileged or whatever, all those kind of things, like you're still not going to think life is perfect. So that's something we have to remember all of us are going to face something that we will find difficult no matter how kind of objectively good our life is. And secondly, remember that this comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew's, Matthew chapters, I said Matthew's, I don't know why I said that. Matthew chapters 5 through 7, uh, outlines, Jesus outlines this incredibly challenging ethic to live by. 
So he says a bunch of stuff like live above reproach in such a way that people glorify God because of your good works. Be salt and light. You know, a lustful look is adultery. Acting on anger is murder. Reconcile with your brother immediately. Lend without expecting a return. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. You know, love your enemies and pray for them. Pray and fast in secret. Judge not lest you be judged. Like, et cetera, et cetera. There's this very kind of uh, challenging ethic to live by. And so the idea of are you on the hard road or the easy road is if you find hardship in this life because you are trying to live out that ethic, that's the hardship that Jesus is talking about. So if in the interest of helping those in need, you don't buy what you can afford, but you give instead. So you live a, left, a lesser lifestyle even than you can for the sake of helping people in need. If in the interest of your integrity, you don't, you don't rise in society you know, as rapidly as you possibly could. If in the interest of your enemy, of loving your enemy, you're called soft and weak you know, by the world, by the world standards, because you don't fight back. Because you don't take vengeance, you know, when you have a chance. If you forgive and love people in your heart because of that, because you have to absorb the hurt. That's the hard road that Jesus is referring to. So are you on the easy road or the hard road? Another thing we have to consider is, are you on the wide road or the narrow road? So I find it interesting that a common uh, kind of phrase that's used nowadays uh, when trying to convince someone that something is the right thing, right, is to say, like, be on the right side of history, you know, or don't be on the wrong side of history. I found it interesting in reading that uh, this phrase was actually used by uh, Nikita Khrushchev in 1956. Uh, so he was at this uh, reception at a Polish embassy in Moscow. And uh, he, was, he was saying something threatening, essentially, to other, the other ambassadors there. He said, we stick firmly to the Lenin precept. Don't be stubborn if you see you are wrong, but don't give in if you are right. And then one of the diplomats interjected. He said, when are you right? right? And then a bunch of people laughed. And so Khrushchev got really mad, and he said... About the capitalist states, it doesn't depend on you whether or not we exist. If you don't like us, don't accept our invitations and don't invite us to come see you. So he kind of got, you know, he started to kind of threaten. And then he added this line that became kind of, it became famous. But he said, whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will bury you. So that's how Khrushchev used this line. And uh, N.T. Wright points out another phrase that we use, like now that we live in the modern age. And it is this understanding that, hey, we've moved on from certain stuff. You know, we've evolved basically societally. You know, we're progressing. Don't you know that, you know, ignorance and superstition, those are things of the past. You need to catch up with where history is now. And he says that it assumes history is automatically going somewhere with that somewhere being a steadily more free, open, liberal, and tolerant society. And he calls this the myth of progress. And he says, everybody appropriates this line, the right side of history. 
Now, here's my question, church. Because I think we fall, we fall victim to this mentality as well, right? Are we worrying too much about being on the right side of history and not enough about being on the right side of eternity? Because we probably think about that a lot. Like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. But, you know, human history will end at a certain point. And the only person who will be on the right side will be God. He will ultimately determine who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side. Because as long as we're living out our history, people are going to try to appropriate that line you know, to, to bully you into thinking something. Here's an even more fundamental question, and I know we're spending a lot of time on this, and we'll go through some of the others a little bit more quickly, but this is important. Do you even want to be on the narrow road? On the hard, narrow road? Like, think about it. Everyone who claims to be a Christian wants a church on the narrow road. I know that. Right? We all want our church to be on the narrow road. Everyone wants to attend a church that is biblical and prayerful and missional and cares about the oppressed and the orphan and the widow and the poor and the refugee. Everybody wants a church that does those things. But not many people want to actually do those things. Now, only you can truthfully examine which road you're on, which road you want to be on. Do you want to be on the comfortable, popular road that leads to death or the uncomfortable, unpopular road that leads to life? Here's one, one last way you can think about this question, okay? What do you want people to think about you? Wow, that person is so cool. Or... Wow, that person is so different. Because essentially, which of those, uh, between those two things, what you aspire to be seen as by people on the other road is going to determine which road you take. Right? If, you, if you want to be seen as kind of, oh, cool, then you're going to go to the wide road. If you want to be seen as different, which is the ethic that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, it is incredibly different for better and, you know, to be perceived as better and worse. Then you will aspire to be on the narrow road. So, that's point one. How do we kind of examine our discipleship, whether it is authentic or not? Examine the road that you're on. Okay, now let's read on. Verse 15. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit 
is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Here's point number two. Examine the teachings you receive. Examine the teachings you receive, including my own. Right? And that's something that I say to you guys a lot. I don't want you to just accept everything that you hear. Now, here, it's talking about false prophets. Uh, the text shows, Jesus is saying that there are these teachings that may seem good at first, but eventually they reveal themselves to be against God and the gospel and thus evil. Right? Now, fruit as he talks about in this passage, fruit is uh, the product of a person's essential life. And this fruit that he's talking about here, it's not, you know, money. It's not some kind of determinant of success. It is the fruit of Christ-likeness. Really, that's the way that uh, fruit is born, is really uh, kind of categorized in the Bible. It is the fruit of Christ-likeness. It is the, the fruit of the gospel working in people's lives. So non-believers becoming believers, believers growing in Christ-likeness. And it says, uh, a vine or a tree will only produce fruit that is consistent with its nature, good to good, bad to bad. So if you've gone through the gate and you're transformed into Christ and you are following the teachings of Christ, then that is going to bear good fruit. If that hasn't happened, it's going to bear bad fruit. Now, I don't know. I, I could talk a lot about this. I'm actually going to kind of move through it quickly. But uh, I will just say, I, 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 like my hope and prayer for you guys is that you think for yourself, right? That you have, and I don't just mean that like, oh, you think for yourself and you're extremely critical or something like that. It's I want you to have your own relationship with God. And your own understanding of scripture whereby you can hold other teachings to the Bible and to the gospel and be able to kind of filter them through that lens. That is extremely important kind of in your discipleship and a part of what I pray for you guys every week. Like, And even, again, even if I say something that's weird, you know, and you think, oh, is that really right? And you want to have a conversation about it, please, like, email me about it. Anything that you hear anywhere, and that includes, like, your parents, the news, your friends. Like, teachings are coming from all over the place. We have to have this, this filter, right? We talk about this all the time. But this, you have to put it through this filter of Scripture and the gospel. And even to look sometimes to examine the what comes as a result of this teaching is that actually Christ likeness is that actually what you want to follow examine that carefully do i see the fruit of this person's teaching making people more like jesus So that's uh, the second thing. Examine the teachings you receive. Thirdly, examine your own obedience. Examine your own obedience. Now let's read on here. Verse 21. 
It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that a crazy text? Like, you should be a little bit freaked out right now. Not everyone who claims to know Jesus will be affirmed in that claim at the end. Right? He's saying, not, Jesus is saying, not everybody who comes up to me and says, Lord, Lord, which is the right way to address Jesus, the right title, kind of the right Christian language, is Jesus going to say back, is he going to respond to them, well done, good and faithful servant? Is he going to respond? Not everybody who says that to him, will he respond with, oh, good to see you. Some people who say that to Jesus will find this response, I never knew you. I don't know you. There will be people surprised on the last day. People who thought, oh, I'm, I'm definitely Christian, but who never really followed Jesus. And then they'll say, right? Did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do these mighty works? Now, a couple things are being pointed out in the text. One, your personal feeling, like your personal sense of salvation is not evidence of salvation. It's not a, well, I should say, it's not a guarantee of salvation. So just because you feel like, you feel like you're a Christian, doesn't necessarily mean that you're Christian. Secondly, just because you have done some kind of ministry and it has been successful, particularly in these more miraculous ways, that is also not a guarantee that you're Christian. You have to consider the possibility that you're not really following Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we should live in this kind of uh, paranoid state, you know, where we're always thinking, well, am I saved? Am I not saved? But we should be careful not to just assume salvation regardless of the evidence of our life. Right? I mean, why is Jesus saying all this stuff? Why is he saying there's a wide road and there's a narrow road? Be careful. Why is he saying there are teachings that bear good fruit and teachings that bear bad fruit? Be careful. Why is he saying not everybody who comes to me at the end and just says the right thing is going to make it into heaven? Be careful. He's saying that because there needs to be some vigilance in our lives. There needs to be some sense of urgency in our lives. There needs to be a fight in our lives that we are living every single day until we see Jesus face to face and not this kind of casual walking into Christianity and just thinking, well, you know, I'm safe for sure. 
regardless of what I do or what I say or whether I follow the Father's will or not. I mean, what does it matter? I'm safe for sure. Now, we don't like statements like this because it makes it seem like our own salvation is a little less assured. But I, I trust me, if you read the Bible, there are plenty of statements like this. Is salvation by grace through faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, that is a theological truth. The question, though, is, are we really under it? Because also affirmed in Scripture is, real faith, authentic faith, is going to lead to authentic works. If it doesn't, that faith is dead, right? That's what James says. So we need to live, you know, not, again, not paranoid, but vigilantly. We should actually examine ourselves. We should actually examine our hearts and our lives, examine our own obedience. Now, finally, this is a fourth point. Examine the foundations you're building on. Examine the foundation that you are building your life upon. Let's look at verse 24. It says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now, uh, the locale for the, the Sermon on the Mount near the Sea of Galilee finds a good setting, a natural setting for this parable. Uh, the sand uh, the sand around the seashore was hard on the surface during the hot summer months. Okay, so it was actually, you know, like sometimes we read this, right, and we think like, well, what dummy would like build a house on sand? Okay, but the, the idea is this area, the sand was very hard in the summer, so you actually could build the house on the sand. However, any smart builder or someone who knew the area, they would actually dig into the sand, even though it was hard, they would dig down uh, uh, some as, as, as deep as 10 feet below the surface of the sand till they got to the bedrock, till they got to the actual foundation. Right? And then that, that's where they would build their house. Now, obviously, it's a lot harder to, to dig 10 feet into the ground before you build your house. If you just want to build your house fast, then you just build it on the sand. The sand seems hard. But then when the winter months came and the rain came, then those houses would all collapse. Obviously, because it's actually built on sand. So then the house is built on sand, Jesus' point, extremely vulnerable. Right? They're not sturdy and found. They don't weather the storms. They're very volatile. You know, um, you know, we've been, uh, Boomy and, and I and the, the boys, we've been going to the park like once a week. It's basically the only thing we can do. You know, so we'll, we'll go to the park. And uh, this past week we went to the park and um, 
you know, we were just playing there. The the boys usually like ride around. Like Micah rides his little scooter, and Josiah we have this like wagon. They ride around in it. And for some reason, this day, they just like went crazy, right? Like uh, these bugs, they're all these, I guess, like aphids, and they got on them, and and they just couldn't contain themselves. And I don't know, they weren't really, I don't know, they're not usually that scared of bugs, but these bugs just got on them, and they were all over. It got all over Micah's scooter, got all, and the flies were getting on Josiah. And then all of a sudden, they just like they just went crazy. They were crying, they were breaking down. People were like walking around in the park looking at us, and they're kind of like laughing because it's cute. But then also, they, they would do this thing where they walk by, and it's like this process. They look at the kid. You know, and they're kind of sad at first, checking if they're okay. Then they realize they're okay. They kind of make this like, oh, it's cute face. Then they look at us and then they make this kind of sympathetic face like, oh, sorry. You know, you're going through this. Like we're getting this sympathy from other parents, right? And it's just, they just went crazy. And then Micah went super crazy. Like Bumi took Josiah to the car. And I was, I was like, okay, Micah, we have to leave. All of a sudden, he didn't want to leave. First, he wanted to leave. Then he's like, oh, I don't want to leave. And then he just said, you leave. Leave me here. <laughs> like, I don't want to leave the park. I said, who's going to pick you up? Who's going to take care of you? Obviously, I'm just kind of humoring his, his idea. And then he's like, some other parents will come pick me up. I want other parents. You know, he's like, I want another dad. He's like, I want a dad who's going to let me play at the park. You know, I'm like, I'm like, what are you saying? I'm kind of getting mad, right? I'm like, what are you saying? You know, like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, I don't, I don't love you. Like, I don't care. You just leave, leave me here. You know, and that's like, I mean, I almost got, I almost got crazy, <laughs> but I calmed myself and we had a talk, you know, later and he apologized and stuff. And we, we made up, I apologize. He apologized. But you know, that kind of stuff happens a lot with kids, Right kids for no reason at all they can fly off the handle they can go crazy right they can have these emotional outbursts they're kind of unstable sometimes and that's you know that's normal for a child but if we build our lives on sand that's kind of what we'll find ourselves doing being very volatile, being all over the place, no foundation. Something happens, we can't deal with it. Like everything's good when everything's good, right? In the summer, when the sand is good, it's easy for everything to be good because the sand's hard. That's what we built it on. That's what we built our lives on, that sand. But when the winter comes, when the rain comes, when the storm comes, what happens? Is our foundation still strong? Do we see our mission the same, our purpose the same, our life the same, our worth the same because it is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is it, is it volatile? Is it all over the place? How do we do this? How do we build, how do you build your foundation on the rock of Christ? How do you do the will of the Father? Now, it's not this. It's not, I've stated this before, but it's not to be more intentional about obeying every command of Christ. Now, I will br briefly explain 
why that's not going to work. Okay, actually, I want to look at Romans 12. This is Romans 12, 10 to 21. It says, I'm going to read it just quickly, but it says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good okay just in this one passage alone there are 25 imperatives in just these 11 verses you can't Focus on doing even all 25 of those things all the time. That's just one short passage, right? Being intentional about those 25 things is not going to work because you're finite. You're not going to be able to even remember all 25 of those things, let alone intentionally, prayerfully step into them from moment to moment. Do you know how many imperatives there are in the New Testament? 1,800 commands. If you think, oh, well, you know, I just need to focus a little bit more on loving people. I just need to focus a little bit more on being gentle or, you know, being hospitable or being generous. That's not going to work. How can you focus on 1,800 commands all at the same time? How can you remember them, let alone focus on them? Now, the answer isn't because of that, that obedience doesn't matter. Of course, obedience matters. Of course, Paul has given us, you know, Christ has given us, and Paul and the other writers of the New Testament have given us all of these commands for a reason. But here's what the commands are. The commands are signposts on the road that point to your progress in the deeper transformation that's happening in your heart. So they serve these two purposes, right? One, if you're on the right road, you're going the right way, you're sitting under the right teaching, the signposts are going to point you to evidence that you're growing in Christ, that you're becoming more like Jesus, that you are actually. So you read a text and you're like, oh, you know what? I actually am growing in, in, in this general, I actually am learning to forgive people. I actually am learning to, you know, love people around me and to forgive my Uh, to forgive people around me and to love my enemy. Wow, I actually am learning these things. Now that doesn't point to, okay, you focus on that more. It points to, wow, Jesus is actually doing a work in my heart. And that is incredible. And that leads us to greater appreciation and a deeper dive into the gospel to get more of that transformation. Now, on the flip side, if we read the, the text And we read it, and then it convicts us like, wow, I'm not doing that. I am really far off when it comes to this. Then it convicts us of sin so that we can go back deeper into the gospel again. 
to be desperate and to know that we need to be transformed. It's a signpost that you're on the wrong road. You need to get back on the right road. Here is the battle that you will have to engage in every day for the rest of your life because the, the, the New Testament characterizes some responses as root and some as fruit. If you were to try to do all the 1800 commands and focus on each one of them and build them all into your life and, you know, have these, like you're going you're gonna to map it out and have a schedule and do everything exactly the way, like that's never going to, that's you focusing on the fruit right after it's already been planted and grown you know if you did if you planted a whole crop of apples right and then you you get the apples after they're grown and all the apples are messed up and then you go and you try to fix every single apple that's ridiculous right what it tells you is something's wrong somewhere else in the planting process so when you do the next crop you got to go back and go to the root of the issue right and fix it there so here are, some, here, are, here are the things that we should focus on. I'm just going to give you two things to focus on, okay, every single day. Responding to God in faith and hope. Those are roots, right? Hundreds of good fruits come from having a restful trust in God and having an optimistic hope in Christ, so ask yourself these questions every day. Will I trust in God's love demonstrated in the gospel today for my worth, for my peace? Or will I trust in myself? Or will I trust in some other teaching? Will I trust in some other thing to get that? Secondly, will I hope in Christ today for my joy and my security or will I hope in myself, or my job, or my ability, or my potential, or my community, or my family? Will I trust in God's love demonstrated in the gospel? Will I hope in Christ? I'm going to close with this. Um, so I watched, Boomy and I watched Hamilton <laughs> this past week on Disney+. Plus. Um, it's crazy how, like, watching something like this at this point is like the most it's like the best thing we could do it's like it's like the this is it this is going out at this point getting a a, a bag of kettle corn and eating it all in one sitting and while we watch this while we watch this um recorded uh musical and it was great if you haven't seen it it's definitely worth a watch uh that's my one-line review but um there was one song that made me think you know and it's actually not one of the super popular songs uh, it's a song called uh, non-stop and it's about uh, Alexander Hamilton after the Revolutionary War and the role that Alexander Hamilton played in defending the Constitution and, and helping write the, the Federalist Papers, which if you don't remember, it was like these essays to defend the Constitution. And um, they planned to write 25 essays, but in the end, they wrote 85 essays in the span of six months. And uh, Hamilton wrote 51 of those 85 uh, essays, which is kind of crazy. And then this is, this was, I was watching it and this was, this is from the song. I'm not going to sing it or anything. It's actually, it's more like a rap, but um, this is part of the song and it's just these questions, right? And it's, it's Aaron Burr asking these questions about Alexander Hamilton. And he said, uh, why do you always say what you believe? Why do you, 
always say what you believe. Every proclamation guarantees free ammunition for your enemies. Why do you write like it's going out of style every day and night like it's going out of style? Every day you fight like it's going out of style. How do you write like you're running out of time? Every Write day and night like you're running out of time. Every day fight like you're running out of time, like you're running out of time. Are you running out of time? How do you write like tomorrow won't arrive? How do you write like you need it to survive? How do you write every second you're alive? Every second you're alive. Every second you're alive. You know, and it's about how he was so kind of possessed by the cause he was a part of, like building the nation. And it made me think, this is how I think when I watch things, but what if every Christian lived that way? You know, what if every Christian studied, examined, preached, defended the gospel like we were running out of time, like tomorrow won't arrive, like we need it to survive every second we're alive, what would the church be then? Would we dream of, you know, great acoustics and high-end equipment and fun parties and gourmet pastries and coffees? Or would we dream of healing on the streets and reconciled families in the pews and orphans and barren mothers finding one another and refugees finding their footing in a new country and of the poor being satisfied both physically and spiritually? Would we dream of people so devoted to Jesus that we would forego many of the conveniences that we have become accustomed to for the sake of those who don't have any? Would we dream of throwing banquets for the poor and orphans and widows and refugees instead of for ourselves, of providing scholarships for low-income areas, community centers for underprivileged youth, for half of the church to just go overseas where there's no gospel? Would we dream of all who claim to be God's people to take up the call to preach the gospel and to embody it? Here's a question, church, that only you can answer. Do you even want that for you? Do you want? What do you want? Right? Do you want the church to be a place where you can feel good despite not really following Christ? Because I, I fear and partially suspect that that's the kind of church that we've been building in America. To go to church so that you can feel good about your life despite the complete lack of evidence that you're actually following Jesus. Because we like that. We, we want to feel good. But is that what we want? Is that what the Bible says? Or do you want your life to be so disrupted by Jesus that your reactions and your joys and your responses to the things that happen in life, including suffering, including the choice to step into suffering for the sake of people who suffer, are inexplicable to people outside the gospel. That when they look at it, they're like, why do you do that? 
I don't understand that because the rest of the world is doing this one thing and you, you're doing something different. Why do you do that? Why do you care so much about that? How come that's the only thing you can talk about, that you can write about, that you can post about? How come that's the only thing that gets you up in the morning? How is that the only thing you think about? And how do you do it as if your time is limited? If we can get that vision into our heads and pursue it zealously, I... I shudder, you know, kind of a good shuddering at what the church could do and would be. And I hope that's the kind of authentic discipleship that we can aspire to together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you love us and you grace us and you care for us before we do for you, God. We thank you that our salvation is not dependent on what we do. but it is dependent wholly on your work. But we thank you, God, that you also remind us that you have not left us here to sit idly while we await eternity. God, there is a purpose that we are here, a powerful purpose. There is work, God, that you would do in us and through us, that you would allow us graciously to engage in by your power so that we could be transformed and we could witness the transformation of lives and communities and peoples around us. Spirit, would you give us courage to step into that? Would you give us clarity as we examine our own hearts, the road we're on, the teaching we sit under, our own obedience, God, the foundation we're building on? We pray, Jesus, that that would be you. Give us that faith and give us that hope that is going to bear good fruit. We entrust it to you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.